morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington. Today is Friday, March the 11th, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. Sudan's military rulers announced an emergency committee to address the country's collapsing economy. The Senegalese president and chair of the African Union, Makisal, has asked Russian President Vladimir Putin to seek a lasting ceasefire in Ukraine. He says Russia is a country that exports a lot of products, like gas and raw materials such as wheat, and that that can have an economic impact, especially with regards to trade. In Tanzania, the main opposition party, Chadima, says it feels vindicated after charges against its national chairman, Freeman Bowe, were dropped. Constitution says that they have no intention of continuing the charges against our national chairman. John Rema is Chadema's director of communication, and hundreds of South African students affected by the war in Ukraine say their government is not helping them. We'll have these stories and sports coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, Senegalese president and chair of the African Union, Makisal, has asked Russian President Vladimir Putin to seek a lasting ceasefire in Ukraine. Sal's talk with Putin comes just a week after Senegal abstained from a UN vote to condemn the Russian invasion. As Anika Hamschlag reports from Dakar, African nations have interest in seeing an end to the war, but also not upsetting Putin. Saul's request as chairman of the African Union Wednesday was a contrast to his actions as Senegalese president a week prior when Senegal joined 16 other African nations in abstaining from a UN vote to condemn the Russian invasion. Senegal is considered a beacon of democracy in West Africa, so the move came as a surprise to many. Joseph Siegel is the director of research for the Africa Center for Strategic Studies. He says the vote reflected Senegal's posture of non-alignment, similar to many other African countries over the years. It isn't a vote of support for Russia, he says, but a vote for trying to maintain neutrality. Russia has a plethora of business dealings throughout the African continent. Senegal, for example, signed a $300 million deal with Russian oil company Luke Oil just last year. The company also has operations in Cameroon, Egypt, Ghana, and Nigeria. Russian mining companies are also active throughout Africa, from extracting diamonds in Angola to aluminum in Guinea and uranium in Namibia. Most notably, Moscow is Africa's leading supplier of weapons. Since 2015, it signed military agreements with more than 20 African countries. Furthermore, private Russian military companies with close ties to the Kremlin have gained an increasingly strong foothold in African countries such as Mali and the Central African Republic. So, while it may be in the best interest of many African countries to avoid tension with the Kremlin, leaders are beginning to feel the ripple effect of the war. Abdulhaman Cham is the head of the political science department at Dakar's University of Sheikhanta Diop. He says Russia is a country that exports a lot of products, like gas and raw materials such as wheat, and that that can have an economic impact, especially with regards to trade. Luckily, the African Union does have some sway, Chiam says. He says international relations are not only decided by major world powers. The African Union is still a regional institution that can be considered an influential voice. Russia also needs Africa, he added, and it's in their best interest to listen to the African Union. 
In a statement about the call, the Kremlin referred to the invasion as a special military operation to protect Donbass and did not mention Saul's request for a ceasefire. Instead, it stated that Russia was asked to safely evacuate foreign citizens and said both leaders had reaffirmed their commitment to further develop Russia-African relations. Annika Hammerschlag for VOA News, Dakar, Senegal. Sudan's military rulers this week announced an emergency committee to address the country's collapsing economy and pointed to its gold mining as a possible boost. Sudan's ambassador to Russia has denied reports that Moscow has been smuggling gold from Sudan in preparation for sanctions over its invasion of Ukraine. But Sudanese analysts say gold smuggling is rampant, including to Russia, as Samar Qatar reports from Khartoum. State media on Thursday said the ruling Sovereign Council's second-in-command General Mohamed Hamdan Daglu, known as Himeti, met with gold miners who vowed to supply the central bank with gold. The report came after Himeti gave a rare press statement this week on efforts to prevent the country's economic collapse. Sudan's exports dropped 85% in January and prices for everything are quickly rising. One of the main sparks for the 2019 uprising that led the military to oust former President Omar al-Bashir. In remarks to media Monday, Hemeti announced an economic emergency committee to address the issues. Among other measures, he pointed to Sudan's gold mining, which amounts to at least 50 tons per year as a potential solution. <laughs> Hamiti says one of the most important resources that can help boost Sudan's economy is the gold. He says security forces have arrested a lot of people smuggling gold, 40 buyers in all. He says the buyers are not the problem and asks from whom are they buying this gold. That's the question, he says, adding, we will find out. Hamiti gave no details on the nationalities of those arrested, the timing or who was suspected of buying how much smuggled gold. His comments came just days after a report in the British Telegraph newspaper said Russia prepared for sanctions over its Ukraine invasion by buying smuggled Sudanese gold. Hamiti didn't comment on the allegation in his remarks. Late last month, Hamiti began a week-long visit to Moscow as much of the world was criticizing Russia for preparing to invade its neighbor. The Kremlin's invasion began as Hamiti met with Russian officials to discuss expanding and strengthening cooperation with Sudan. After the general's trip to Moscow, he reaffirmed a Bashir-era deal for Russia to open a navy base in Port Sudan, which, if carried out, would be Russia's first in Africa. Sudan's foreign ministry spokesman refused to comment on the allegations of Russian gold smuggling. But in a written response to VOA through a messaging application, Sudan's acting ambassador to Russia, Onur Ahmad Onur, dismissed the claims. I have nothing to say other than it's fake news and a story created from the imagination of the Telegraph reporter, read the text. Hemeti commands the Rapid Support Forces, the RSF, which grew out of the Janjaweed militias that human rights groups say committed crimes against humanity in Sudan's Darfur region. Analysts say the RSF is itself involved in gold smuggling. Salah Haddoma is Dean of Political Science at Omdurman Islamic University. He says Russian surely obtained gold from several sources, not only Sudan. But yes, says Adoma, Sudan is one of the countries that the Russian companies managed to benefit from with secret agreements with the RSF and other entities like the former ruling National Congress Party. He says Russia, like many countries, benefited from smuggling Sudanese gold.
The RSF office refused to take a call from VOA seeking comment on the allegations. A spokesman at Sudan's Ministry of Minerals confirmed to VOA that two Russian gold mining companies are operating in the country, Elianz and Miru Gold, a subsidiary of M Invest. But the ministry spokesman would not comment on allegations of gold smuggling. A 2019 report by CNN says M Invest, a Russian company linked to the Kremlin and Russian mercenaries, was heavily involved in smuggling gold out of Sudan. CNN reported in 2019 that M Invest, a mining company that U.S. says is owned by Russian President Vladimir Putin's ally, Yevgeny Prigozhin, also advised Sudanese authorities how to quash public protests. Authorities say Brigozhin is behind the Wagner Group of Russian mercenaries that UN experts have accused of human rights abuses from Syria to Libya to the Central African Republic. While it is not clear to what extent the Russian companies are still involved in Sudan's gold mining, analysts say most of it has been off the books. Senhuri Isa is former head of economics at Sudan's largest newspaper, Raya Al-Aam. He says exporting Sudan's gold to Russia remains a smuggling operation, as is the case with nine other neighboring countries of Sudan. The export is probably done through the United Arab Emirates UAE, says Isa through Khartoum International Airport. The only outlet is the UAE, he says, where Sudan's smuggled gold gets refined and stamped as an Emirate product, then re-exported. It was not possible to independently verify Isa's claims. Sudan was headed for international relief from lenders but was cut off from foreign assistance after an October military coup overthrew the transitional government formed after al-Bashir ouster. Since the coup, ongoing street protests against military rule have left at least 85 people dead. Samah Khatir for VOA News, Khartoum, Sudan. In Tanzania, the main opposition party, Chadima, says it feels vindicated after charges against its national chairman, Freeman Bowie, were dropped. The party says the charges were a politically motivated effort to thwart the group's demand for a new constitution and calls for respect for freedom of expression and assembly. Freeman Bowie and three other accused opposition supporters were released after the prosecution dropped terrorism charges against them. Several civil society and religious groups in the opposition called on President Samia Suluhu Hassan and senior government officials to release the opposition leader. They expressed concern about the use of state institutions, including the police and the judiciary, to clamp down on the activities. But supporters of the government say President Hassan has demonstrated good leadership, which they add led to the decision to drop charges against the opposition leader. Mr. John Mrema is Chadema's Director of Communication, Foreign Affairs and Protocols. He tells VOS Peter Cloti that the party's national chairman, Mr. Mbowe, will soon announce the group's next line of action in their demand for a new constitution. It is true that uh, the director of public prosecution decided to go to the court and tell the court that the, the government or the prosecution side, they, they have no intention of continuing with the charges against it. our national chairman the court, three court choose. And that is what we exactly say since July, when he was arrested, he said that the charges are politically motivated. And you remember, they said that they had uh, 24 witnesses, but they only decided to have 15, 
And actually, the one who initiated the case, the former director of criminal investigation, Robert Boer, didn't appear in the court. So that shows that the charges were not legal. They were just politically motivated, and it was because Freeman Boer was challenging the government that we need to sit down and have a new constitution as a country. And that's why we were charged. After Mbome's release, pictures came out that he held a meeting with the president. How did the meeting go, and what does that signify to Chadema? It is true that after the release, that evening, uh, the president called him and had an appointment with him, and Mr. Mbome was at the right set out with the president. The discussions were very fruitful. He did presented to her exactly what is our demand for the Chadema. And the main demand is the need of having a new constitution for the country. Some people are suggesting that the government's action, releasing Mbowe, dropping the charges against him, uh, having access to the president and meeting the president, shows that the president is demonstrating leadership. What is the stance of Chadema on this assertion? I can agree with those that, that kind of view that the president is trying to show leadership. But I think the Kulei, she was supposed to do that if they won. It's what if she took power because she, she, she is the president of the country and the role of the leader is to unite and unify the country, not to divide the country along the political ideologies or political political beliefs. So at the moment I think what she's doing, we see she's trying to open a new chapter and we are ready to rise on that new chapter she's opening up. So looking forward, did the president say or make any commitment to addressing uh, the list of what expectations Chadema wants her to address? Uh, it is too electrical to, to say anything at this, at this moment because as I told you that three uh, money will come in public and say exactly what they are doing with the president, what is the plans ahead, if there are any future plans ahead, Finland will make that public very soon. So to me to make it public it's very early. That was John Mrema, Chadima's Director of Communication, Foreign Affairs and Protocols, speaking to VOS Peter Claudi from Tanzania. Hundreds of South African students affected by the war in Ukraine accuse their government of doing nothing to help them. They say the ruling African National Congress's position of neutrality regarding the conflict shouldn't prevent it from doing everything possible to ensure their safety. Some of the students have managed to leave Ukraine using their own resources and initiative, but many remain trapped in cities and towns being bombarded by the Russian military. Darren Teller has more. When Moscow invaded Ukraine two weeks ago, Sputnik Reddy's father phoned the government for advice, asking what President Cyril Ramaphosa's administration would be doing to help its citizens get home. Reddy says officials told his dad there was nothing they could do to help. The South African government should be doing something, but they haven't even issued a notice or anything. They're just silent. VOA asked South Africa's Department of International Relations for comment, but received no reply. Last Friday, as air raid sirens were sounding, 23-year-old medical student Reddy began the longest journey of his life.
from the city of Dnipro in eastern Ukraine. The earliest train was at 7 o'clock in the morning. I left my apartment at 2 to get there and everything. There were no Ubers. And then once we got to the train station, the train didn't actually come. There was no train. So we waited for the next train just a couple of hours later, which we had to fight to get to the door. But then we couldn't get to the door, so we, we missed that one. And then we had to wait like another few hours for the next one. And then we were lucky enough to get onto that, onto that one. Reddy says it took three days to make it across the border. He eventually reached Slovakia. I'm across the border, but I don't have a SIM card, I don't have Wi-Fi, I don't have any money. You don't get that true sense of relief until you get back home. Fortunately, says Reddy, he also has Indian citizenship. He says he was amazed at the treatment given to refugees by the government of India. Who picked its citizens up at the border, took them to hotels, fed them, supplied medical aid, everything. If you lost your passport, they issued passports within the hour. And then they flew everybody back home in Air Force carriers. And then from there, they flew them back to their native states. And then they made sure the parents picked them up. They basically treated you like you were their own children. Reddy is now staying with a cousin in Hyderabad. Another student, Salim Esop, managed to flee the Ukrainian capital, Kiev. When we saw the way the people were jumping onto the train, it was something out of a movie because they were going mad ballistic. I myself was almost pulled off the train. It felt like a thousand yens, like dragging me back so I couldn't get on. But luckily I was like saved and like pulled on. He's now in Hungary. It has been such a welcoming for people that they don't even know us. They have no reason to give us anything. And a simple thing like them giving us a couch, it's everything to us. Other South African students, however, are still stuck in Ukraine, like Elise Ndondo, who's sheltering in a bunker beneath her hostel in the northeastern city of Sumy. There's two roads out of this city, and one of them was destroyed. And then the other one, when people tried to take that road, the Ukrainian soldiers send them back. And then the railway station has also been destroyed constant bomb blasts all the time. Again, she says, South African officials have said they can't help her. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. Kenyan artisans say they are losing the market for their products to Chinese imports. According to the craftspersons, the high quality and lower prices of Chinese-made goods put them at a disadvantage. Victoria Amonga reports from Nairobi. An African Union study on international trade finds that the African continent is the largest market for Chinese goods. Some Kenyan consumers prefer the wide variety of the cheap products. Mary Wambui is one such buyer. There's always variety. All the time you get uh, new products and they have uh, different uh, types and uh, you don't get um, the same ones all the time. So every time you come, there's something new that has come up. Wahoro Ndoho, an economist in Kenya, says a lack of strong automation and technology in Kenyan manufacturing means most products made locally are by craftspeople, not machines. Your Kali sector in Kenya has very much been human-power-driven rather than machine-driven. And so you find that it inevitably means when things are made in China, they can be made in bulk, they're made by, in by machine. While we compete, if you go to, you come back to this day, they still beat up those carries for cooking mandazis with hands. 
And for every hour they make one, a machine can make a thousand. The Kenya National Federation of Juakali Association told VOA that imports from China have cost them the regional market. Engineer Charles Kalomba is the Secretary General of the Artisans Federation. Energy saving vehicles, which have got a liner, a clay liner, and they have just a metal, fabricated metal and a clay liner, and we used to produce a lot of it for the, the, the East African region. Today, there's a lot of influx of the same into the market. Data from the Kenya Export Promotion and Branding Agency show that South Africa is the only African country among the top 25 nations exporting to China. Kenyan authorities are banking on the trade agreements to sell more to China. The agency's chief executive officer, Wilfred Marube, explains. And there was a bilateral engagement uh, in January, whereby some of the areas which were agreed upon and also a joint uh, uh, committees established was to basically to ask the question, how does the Chinese government and the Kenyan government work together to increase market access to Kenyan products, especially the agricultural products? Victoria Amunga for VOA News, Nairobi. And now it's time for Daybreak Africa Sports. And with that, we go to Samson O'Malley. Good morning to you, Samson. Good Friday morning to you too, Jackson. We begin the sport with the group phase of the CAF Champions League, which enters the fourth match day this weekend, as some teams are well on their way to book slots in the quarterfinals if they book favorable results. The biggest fixture will be the game between Memelodi Sundowns and Al-Hakli of Egypt. Fresh from signing a new deal with Al-Hakli, Pizzo Mersamane will lead his side to a revenge adventure when they travel to face Memelodi Sundowns, a club he once coached before. On arrival in South Africa, he had this to say. Yes, we have won a lot of games, to be honest. We have only lost four for the last 15 months. So, it's not that bad. Okay, we can do better, but uh, that, that's it. And the level... Yeah, it's a bit tough. For their part, Memelodi Sundowns clawed their way to a 1-0 win in the first round of the group stages, their first ever win on Egyptian soil against Al-Hakli. Co-head coach Makoba says his Sundown side has learnt their lessons from previous encounter. We are going to a very tough encounter, a game that has got so much insight and a game that uh, can determine our season. It's a game of consequence because both Ali and ourselves, we are looking for a result that can maybe get us into the quarterfinals or stamp their position in the group stages. In other fixtures, Algerian Giants CL Bozidad will take on Jawane Galaxy of Botswana in a Group C clash. And on the eve of the match, head coach Marcos Paqueta said his side had prepared well enough for the game and that he hoped to take advantage of fatigue amongst the opposition squad. You uh, make a good preparation for this game during the local competition. Uh, should they, they, they have a problem for the they make a big, big uh, travel to, to come to Algeria. And uh, I hope that our players' concentration in this game and play well. 
Friday's early kickoff will see Al Hilal Omduman hosting El Marik. The hosts are especially most affected by a poor run of form that has seen them get rooted to the bottom of Group A. Zamalek will be at home when they host Wada Casablanca of Morocco in Group A. The Egyptian pyramids only need a point to end a place in the last eight as they are currently perched on nine points with a 100% record having won all their opening three games. On Saturday, Amazulu of South Africa will be targeting a third straight win in the CAF Champions League when they take on ES Setif or the start to Juliet 1962. Atuoto Sahel will play Osporon Sportive de Tunis while Horoya will face Raja Casablanca and it will be Petro Duluanda squaring up against Sagranda Esparanca. And that's it on Daybreak African Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, Jackson, in Washington. Thank you, Samson, and have a good day. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this week with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voanews.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook. We are also on Twitter, Instagram, and on YouTube, where you can watch our videos. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungu.